welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. Although I'm not quite as sad as the subject of this week's study guide, Franklin Pierce, who, in my opinion, probably holds the record for being the most sad president of all time. Seriously, if you look at a picture of him, he might give Kendall Roy from his HBO show Succession a run for his money. You probably did learn about Franklin Pierce way back in your high school history class. After all, he did come up when you learned about the confusing hot mess that was bleeding canvas in the 1850s, and if you're a push teacher had pictures of all the presidents the way my A-Push teacher did. He was that one president who was weirdly hot in the mid to late 1800s sort of way. So, Franklin Pierce. In addition to being sad and hot, which is always a fun combination, his study guide includes a problematic but not too deadly manifesto, a ton of booze, and a child getting crushed to death. Let's begin. Franklin Pierce is born November 23rd, 1804 in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Little shout out to New Hampshire, that beautiful, beautiful state that I lived in for four tragic years. Franklin was the fifth of eight children between his parents, Anna Kendrick, no, not the actress, a different Anna Kendrick, and Benjamin Pierce. His father technically did have a daughter from a previous marriage, so Franklin was the sixth of his father's children, but he was the fifth of both of his parents' children together. Benjamin Pierce was a successful Benjamin Pierce had been a successful militia leader during the American Revolution, who had then settled down in New Hampshire and opened a fairly successful farm and tavern. By the time Franklin was born, Benjamin was super involved in New Hampshire state politics. He was a judge and was making a name for himself as a raging anti-federalist. Benjamin would have a huge impact on Franklin, as well as Franklin's other brothers, who would go on to get super involved in both the New Hampshire and U.S. military in the War of 1812. Benjamin wanted all of his sons to do well in life, and because Franklin was the youngest of the sons and was too young to go fight in the War of 1812, Benjamin decided that instead of being a soldier, Franklin was going to be well-educated. So he sent Franklin to a series of local academies as a kiddo. However, Franklin wasn't exactly a fan of spending time away from the family. So at one point, he tried to walk back home from one of the boarding schools he was sent to, which made his father not exactly thrilled. But eventually, the whole boarding school life stuck, and Franklin ended up going to Phillips Exeter Academy to prep for college. During his time at Exeter, Franklin Pierce got the reputation for being extremely smart, but liking to goof off and misbehave. 
but the time at Exeter worked out because at the age of 15, Franklin Pierce went to Bowdoin College in Maine. During his time at Bowdoin, he became really good friends with this kiddo named Nathaniel Hawthorne. And Nathaniel Hawthorne, for those of you who had English teachers who did not teach only dead white men, was going to become a very famous author. During his early years at Bowdoin, Franklin Pierce had a tendency to skip class, hang out with friends, and get drunk. As it turned out, Franklin Pierce really enjoyed drinking, but had a crazy low tolerance, which isn't exactly the greatest combination. As a result, he doesn't exactly do great at school his first two years. He does so badly, in fact, that his sophomore year, he comes dead last in his class of 14 boys. This is a bit of a wake-up call for Franklin, and he starts to buckle down a little bit. By the time he graduates in 1824, at the age of 19, he goes from last in a class of 14 to fifth in a class of 14, which is a pretty good improvement. After college, Franklin Pierce goes to study law, because what else are you going to do if you are a college graduate of some wealth and renown in the early 1800s? He studies law with a family friend and former governor of New Hampshire, MBD. He ends up passing the state bar exam in 1827 at the age of 23. Once again, no big deal. Franklin Pierce's career as a lawyer doesn't start out super great. He technically does lose his first few cases, but pretty soon he gets a reputation for being a really good lawyer. And this shouldn't come as a surprise. Franklin is extremely charming. He has a great speaking voice, and he's really good at remembering people's names and details. Yes, he doesn't have the best grasp at the intricacies of the law, but juries and fellow lawyers love him. And once he becomes a lawyer, Franklin Pierce begins getting interested in local state politics. The same year that he passes the bar exam, his father, Benjamin, becomes the governor of New Hampshire. Benjamin is a super Democrat. He loves Andrew Jackson and hates the concept of the federal government overreaching. And luckily for Benjamin, New Hampshire also loves Andrew Jackson and also hates the idea of executive overreach, which sort of continues to be a trend in New Hampshire. After all, there's a reason that the state motto is live free or die. When Benjamin Pierce becomes governor of New Hampshire. It's 1827. John Quincy Adams is president, and no one is really thrilled about that, thanks to the whole corrupt bargain thing that we've discussed at great length on the show already. So Benjamin Pierce is a fairly popular governor. And now that his daddy's governor, Franklin Pierce is like, YOLO might as well also get involved in the whole state politics thing. And he does. He's going to be very involved in his father's re-election campaign because back in the early 1800s, 
New Hampshire does this whole governors only serve for governor for one year, so you're constantly running for re-election. As it turns out, Franklin Pierce is really good at organizing political campaigns, and he quickly makes a name for himself, helping his father run for re-election. Yes, his dad does lose the re-election campaign, which is really sad, but the next year, in 1829, Franklin Pierce becomes a member of the New Hampshire State Legislature. And two years later, in 1831, Franklin Pierce is the Speaker of the House of the New of the New Hampshire State Legislature. And he's not even 30 by the time that happens. This is a crazy fast turnaround time. During his time as Speaker of the House for the New Hampshire State Legislature, Pierce is basically just going to follow the Democratic Party line on everything, especially vis-a-vis the whole, let's get rid of the National Bank. He is going to make a name for himself in New Hampshire. Pretty soon, everyone's asking, when is this Franklin Pierce kid going to run for Congress? Especially when, in 1832, he meets his hero, Andrew Jackson, who almost certainly was like, hey kiddo, you should run for Congress. During his time in the New Hampshire State Legislature, Franklin Pierce also joins the New Hampshire State Militia because, okay, as someone who lived in New Hampshire, I do happen to know this. Basically, serving in the New Hampshire State Legislature is aggressively not a full-time job. It pays very little And it does that on purpose so that New Hampshire state legislatures can do other things. And in Franklin Pierce's case, that other thing was working for the state militia. He gets very into this concept of making it much stronger. And he's actually going to be active in the New Hampshire state militia through the 1840s. In 1832, Franklin Pierce successfully runs for Congress. He gets elected and he moves to Washington, D.C. However, the move from New Hampshire, where he was the big fish in the small pond, to Washington, D.C., where suddenly no one knows who he is, is really, really hard on Franklin Pierce. He gets extremely homesick, moves into a boarding house with other young congressmen, and really gets into the drinking. Like, really, really gets into the drinking. And Franklin Pierce isn't really ever going to stop the whole drinking thing, which leads to the question if Franklin Pierce was an alcoholic or not. Obviously, we're looking at this with hindsight. It's really hard to diagnose people with issues like alcoholism and mental health issues after the fact. It also is an ethically thorny thing. It's unclear. I'm not really going to try to because I am definitely not, I definitely don't have the background to do so. Either way, Franklin Pierce got drunk very easily. He had no tolerance and he drank more than he should have. Let's just leave it at that. Franklin Pierce's first term in Congress was very low-key. He served on some fairly unimportant committees. He was doing a lot of grunt work, and 
The only thing that we should really keep in mind about his opening term in Congress is the fact that he started getting friendly with a bunch of Southern congressmen because they really liked a speech he gave in honor of the American Revolution. During his opening two years in Congress, he's going to be bonding more with Southerners than Northerners, which is going to be a theme throughout his time in Washington, D.C., and which is going to have some really huge ramifications, both for Franklin Pierce's political career and for U.S. history as a whole. After Pierce serves his first term in Congress and gets reelected, he gets married in 1834 to a young woman named Jane Means Appleton. Jane was the daughter of the president of Bowdoin College, which means that she and Franklin did go decently far back. And as a couple, honestly, they don't make that much sense. Jane's family were wealthy Federalist Whigs who absolutely hated Andrew Jackson, Franklin Pierce's idol. Jane was super shy, she liked to stay in, she didn't have the greatest health, while Franklin Pierce, frankly, liked partying. Oh, and then there was the fact that Jane was a huge fan of temperance and didn't believe in consuming alcohol and tobacco. In terms of appearance, they were also pretty different. Franklin Pierce was known for being tall, dark, and handsome, whereas Jane, no offense, was pretty looking. After the two got married, Jane straight up refused to move to Washington, D.C. She was like, yeah, I'm going to stay in New Hampshire. Have fun living in a boarding house with your southern bros. Even though the two were polar opposites, as far as I could discover, Franklin Pierce was nothing but faithful to her, and the two had three children. Franklin Jr., who died almost immediately after being born, Frank Robert, and Benjamin. I will talk about the two children who did survive childbirth a little bit later on. A few years after marrying Jane in 1837, Franklin gets elected to the U.S. Senate. This is a huge political upgrade for Franklin, but much like his time in the House, during his time in the Senate, he doesn't exactly politically distinguish himself. He keeps a low profile on his committees. He's mostly doing grunt work. He doesn't write any big bills. He doesn't get involved in any debate. He's basically just following the Democratic Party line, keeping his head down, focusing on getting rid of the National Bank, limiting federally funded internal improvements, etc., etc. If he's doing anything, it's going to parties, getting drunk, hanging out with his Southern bros. Really, the only issue that Franklin Pierce really cares about is abolition. Franklin Pierce really dislikes the idea of abolition and freeing slaves, even though he's from the North and should be against the spread of slavery. So, how does that work out? Basically, like I mentioned, most of Franklin Pierce's close political friends and allies in Washington, D.C. were Southerners. In fact, his closest friend in D.C. was a guy you probably have heard of already, Jefferson Davis, a.k.a. the future president of the Confederate States of America. 
As a result, Franklin Pierce is going to become super sympathetic towards pro-slavery views. He also found a lot of abolitionists to be overly smug and overly religious, which is a thing that Franklin Pierce just doesn't have a lot of time for, and he also is afraid that the slavery issue is going to split the Union too much and is going to cause the eventual destruction of the United States, which is something that Franklin Pierce is not a fan of. After all, his father had fought in the American Revolution. He does not want to see the United States that his daddy dearest fought for get split in two by some radical northerners. During his time in the Senate, the big thing that Franklin Pierce is going to be talking about are attempts to make it not allowed to discuss abolition on the floor of the Senate or Congress. And these attempts to make it basically illegal to discuss abolition and slavery on the floor of the Senate and the House are really interesting. It does basically go through, but various Northern politicians like John Quincy Adams manage to get around it in various sly ways. By 1841, Franklin Pierce is sick of Washington, D.C. He's tired of serving in the Senate. After all, he hasn't really been doing that much in the Senate. The only thing he really has to show for his four years in the Senate is a feud with everyone's favorite vulture, John C. Calhoun, who is accusing him of being too soft on abolition, which, come on, John C. Calhoun, if anyone is soft on abolition, it is certainly not Franklin Pierce. Also, by 1841, the Democrats are in the minority, thanks to William Henry Harrison's victory in the 1840 election. Even though Franklin Pierce still has one year left on his term, he resigns early and moves back to New Hampshire to spend time with his family. By this point, only two of his children, Frank Robert and Benjamin, are alive because his oldest child, Frank Jr., had died at only three days old. By this point in his family, his wife Jane is getting really, really religious. She's insisting that the family says grace at every meal. She's really pushing Franklin to go to services with her all the time. We're starting to see some religious tension in the family. And then in 1843, when the family's all together in New Hampshire, Frank Robert, the middle child, dies unexpectedly of typhus. Frank Robert's death is extremely hard on Jane, who goes even deeper into religion. After Frank Robert's death, Franklin starts settling down a little bit more. He really cuts back on his drinking. He definitely had started cutting back when he was getting ready to leave Washington, D.C., but in 1843, Franklin Pierce stops drinking. This is really the one point in his life where he gets in control of his drinking. He opens a law office in Concord, New Hampshire, and becomes a super successful trial lawyer. He is basically the rock star of 1840s New Hampshire. People line up around the street to hear him at work. He is the most famous guy in New Hampshire, which arguably like isn't that hard, but still, 
Good job, Franklin Pierce. Because he's so famous, he starts getting a lot of influence. He successfully pushes through a ban on alcohol and conquered city limits in the 1840s, which one shows how popular Franklin Pierce is within the within the New Hampshire context, but it also is part of this larger conversation about various social movements as part of the Second Great Awakening, which I discussed at further length in the patron-only tangent cast on the Oneida community. Even though Franklin Pierce has removed himself from national politics by now, he is still involved in local democratic politics. In the 1844 national campaign, he helps James Knox Polk organize in New Hampshire, and thanks to Franklin Pierce's help, James Knox Polk ends up winning New Hampshire and ultimately the national election. Thanks to his help, James Knox Polk starts offering Franklin Pierce all sorts of positions within the new administration. However, Franklin Pierce turns down these positions because he is committed to spending time with his family, unlike, oh, I don't know, Millard Fillmore. However, once the Mexican-American War picks up in 1846, Franklin Pierce puts his family aside. He knows, like American history always tells us, that military service can really boost people's political futures. Look at his father. Look at Andrew Jackson. Look at William Henry Harrison, etc., etc. Finally, after years of serving in it, Franklin Pierce resigns from the New Hampshire State Militia and decides to join the National Army. He signs up a bunch of men from New Hampshire to join the National Army and also signs up as a private. However, being a mere private isn't quite enough for Franklin Pierce. He pushes his old buddy, old pal, James Knox Polk, to give him some sort of military commission, and Polk does so. By mid-1847, Polk makes Franklin Pierce a Brigadier General in charge of over 2,000 men, even though Franklin Pierce doesn't have any military experience. But now he has a command of men, and he's ready to fight in Mexico. The first battle that Franklin Pierce fights in is the Battle of Puebla in May 1847 under the command of Winfield Scott. He does fairly well and moves on to fight in Mexico City in August 1847. But then his fortunes in Mexico take a bit of a downturn. During the Battle of Contreras in August 1847, Pierce's horse falls on him, breaking his leg, which means that one, he's at risk of dying from some sort of nasty battlefield infection, and two, slightly more importantly, Franklin Pierce can no longer fight. This causes some confusion mid-battle, and his men retreat in mistake, humiliating both his men and Pierce. After about a month, Franklin Pierce is able to ride and fight again, but by then, the war is wrapped up. And Franklin Pierce's last actions in the war were not exactly glamorous, and he gets the super embarrassing nickname, Fainting Frank. 
Once he's healed, he heads back to New Hampshire, keeping his head down, hoping that no one asks him any tricky questions about his time in Mexico. Once he's back in New Hampshire, he continues practicing law and organizing politics at a local level, which means that by 1850, he's basically the leader of the New Hampshire Democrats. And what's going on in 1850? Oh yeah, the Compromise of 1850. When it comes to the Compromise of 1850, Franklin Pierce is a begrudging fan. He supports the whole protection for slavery, and he's glad that the United States is not split in two, brother fighting brother. He spends the next few years continuing the rock star law practice. And then we get into the 1852 election, which is a hot mess for all parties involved. Both the Democrats and the Whigs are having trouble appealing to the North and South at once because politics have devolved from party identity to sectionalism and feelings around slaveries. People are no longer identifying solely on the Whig-Democrat divide. They're identifying more as Northerners or Southerners, which is a complete paradigm shift to how politics operate in the United States. In an attempt to counter this, the Democratic Party puts a new rule in place at the 1852 nominating committee. This rule says that presidential nominees have to get two-thirds of votes in order to be nominated. This rule is to ensure that any nominee has both Northern and Southern support. In the build-up to the nominating convention, the original frontrunners were James Buchanan of Pennsylvania, Stephen Douglas of Illinois, and everyone's old and forgotten favorite, Lewis Cass of Michigan. Remember the first two names. They're going to be important down the line. However, none of the original frontrunners can hit that two-thirds mark. We see ballot after ballot after ballot, but no one's getting to that two-thirds mark. Finally, on the 35th ballot, someone throws on Franklin Pierce's name, and he suddenly starts pulling votes, and he's getting closer and closer to that two-thirds mark. Suddenly, magically, in a dark horse move, all at James Knox Polk, he gets the nomination after 48 rounds of balloting. Basically, Franklin Pierce is seen as a good compromise. He's pro-slavery, but he's from the North, so he can breach that sectional divide. He doesn't have a huge national reputation, but he doesn't have that many scandals, so he should please everyone. And he looks the part. He's tall, good-looking, and charming. What's not to love? Finally, to further lock in that Southern vote, the Democrats choose William Rufus King of Alabama as Pierce's vice presidential nominee to show that the Democrats have both Northern and Southern support. The Whigs in 1852 end up nominating General Winfield Scott, former war hero, as their nominee after a truly epic fuck-up 
of a nominating convention that I discussed in the Millard Fillmore episode. Neither side runs a good campaign, but honestly, the Whigs campaign was way worse. Winfield Scott gives super boring speeches and is a hugely uninspiring candidate. He also completely alienates the South because he was super anti-slavery. The 1852 campaign is super dirty. The Whigs focus on how Franklin Pierce had fainted during the Mexican-American War when his horse, you know, fell on him, and also really focus in on the fact that he was drunk, well, not constantly, but they like to hint at the fact that he was drunk constantly. Meanwhile, the Democrats say that Scott dreams of being a military dictator, but that he's also a coward because once he refused to duel Andrew Jackson, but look, Honestly, not dueling Andrew Jackson shows a lot of common sense. Franklin Pierce ends up pulling ahead because he has his college BFF and now nationally famous writer Nathaniel Hawthorne campaign for him and write literature for him, which ends up being super helpful. Franklin Pierce ends up winning the election, 254 electoral electoral college votes to Winfield Scott's 42. Scott even loses his home state of Virginia, which is a massive rip. When Franklin Pierce wins the election, he becomes the youngest president so far at the age of 48. Everyone's super happy, except for one person, Franklin Pierce's wife, Jane who isn't exactly thrilled about the whole husband-becoming-president thing. She doesn't want Franklin to get back into politics. In fact, when she finds out that he's the Democratic nominee to be president, she straight-up faints. I mean, maybe her corset was really tight, but either way, she passed out. And things are going to get a little bit worse for the Jane-Franklin relationship. Two months before Franklin's inauguration in January 1853, Jane and Franklin's only surviving child, Benjamin, dies. Franklin, Jane, and Benjamin were on a train leaving Boston. The train derails, and Benjamin gets crushed to death. He's the only fatality of the entire accident. His death has a huge impact on Jane, who actually has to see her son's body in the wreckage. She never recovers mentally and becomes convinced that Benjamin's death was punishment from God for Franklin running for president and then winning the presidency. So on that super uplifting note, let's talk a little bit about the presidency of Franklin Pierce. Franklin Pierce started out his presidency with a bit of a bang. No, not an assassination attempt. His inauguration address was one of the shortest ones of all time. It was only 20 minutes, and he gave it completely from memory. There is not a single mention of slavery in his inauguration address, even though that was arguably the biggest issue of the day. As soon as he was done with the inauguration address, he went straight home. There was no inaugural ball because he and his wife Jane were still mourning the death of their son. 
As soon as he was done with the inauguration, Franklin Pierce got started causing drama over his cabinet choices. Although, it has to be said, as soon as he was done choosing his cabinet, he never changed it once throughout his presidency, so he did know what he wanted. The big source of drama in Franklin Pierce's cabinet was his selection of Jefferson Davis as his Secretary of War. Jefferson Davis, as I'm sure we're all aware, was extremely pro-slavery, which extremely pissed off Northern senators. Oh, and then Franklin Pierce's vice president died of tuberculosis, which is never a great start. Franklin Pierce's main goal as president was keeping the Democratic Party unified. He was going to do whatever it took to keep the party together, but in his attempt to keep the party together, he actually ended up splintering it entirely apart. Funny how that works out. The first big issue that Pierce had to deal with was a few final border issues as a wrap-up from the Mexican-American War. He wrapped this up with the Gadsden Purchase of 1853, where the U.S. bought a small strip of land to complete the Arizona-New Mexico border. This allowed the U.S. to potentially build a southern transcontinental railroad, which is very exciting. Now you have two ways of getting to California. However, he did have to pay $15 million for the small chunk of land, which was quite a lot, but it did give the U.S. the possibility to maybe someday build a canal through Mexico. Obviously, this never happened. The Gadsden Purchase was quite possibly Franklin Pierce's only win for his whole four years. Once he wrapped up the Gadsden Purchase, Pierce then tried to push for a U.S. takeover of Cuba. Basically, Southerners wanted to start expanding south instead of west. The Compromise of 1850 had made it pretty clear that trying to expand slavery west was going to be a bit of a political no-go. So why not expand south into Central America? They had tried this before, trying to take over Central American countries and turn them into slave states. But this, but attempts to do this in the Taylor and Fillmore administrations hadn't really gone anywhere. But Franklin Pierce was willing to give it another shot. He appointed this guy, Pierre Soule, to be the minister to Spain and to negotiate a sale of Cuba to the United States in order to make Cuba a slave state. This failed. Soule got really impatient. He tried to bully Spain into selling Cuba to the United States, and Spain was like, no, and then Soule threatened military action against Spain, and Spain was doubly like, no thank you. Soule then met with James Buchanan, the then foreign minister to England. Soule and Buchanan, with the input of Jefferson Davis, wrote the Ostend Manifesto. The Ostend Manifesto justified U.S. involvement in Cuba. It said that Spanish slaves in Cuba might potentially rebel against the Spanish someday, which could potentially lead to widespread slave rebellions in the United States, 
which meant that the U.S. just had to take over Cuba before these potential rebellions could even happen. The manifesto ended up getting leaked and published, which caused a huge uproar in Spain against the United States. Franklin Pierce had to denounce the entire thing and be like, yeah, no, we have no interest in Cuba. Sorry, my bad. In the process, he also completely isolated England, which traditionally had a decent relationship with the United States when it came to slavery. Um, so yeah, he lost that good relationship when he expelled the British ambassador to the United States over drama to do with the Crimean War. Not great, Franklin. So yeah, we've just come off of a string of losses in terms of foreign policy. Will domestic policy go any better? No, it's not. And it's not going to go better because Kansas is going to happen. Kansas also known as Bleeding Kansas, is really going to be the defining feature in Franklin Pierce's administration. It kicks off in 1854, when Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois gets in charge of a committee that's in charge of dealing with territories that want to become states. Basically, both Kansas and Nebraska territories were getting very close in terms of population to be admitted as states, so the Senate was soon going to have to determine what to do with those two areas of land. And Stephen Douglas was all for that. He really wanted Kansas and Nebraska to eventually become states, because if they were states, it would be a lot easier to build a transcontinental railroad from Chicago to California instead of building a southern transcontinental railroad to California. And if the railroad went to Chicago, it would bring in a lot of money to Illinois, and Stephen Douglas is from Illinois. He ends up pushing for a law that would establish popular sovereignty in Kansas and Nebraska territories. And what is popular sovereignty? Basically, popular sovereignty would allow local white residents to determine if the state was free or slave. That was the precedent that had been set up in New Mexico and Utah Territory under the Compromise of 1850. So it had existed before, except there was one tiny little issue with Stephen Douglas's suggestion. Kansas and Nebraska territories were both explicitly above the Missouri Compromise line. They both should have automatically been free states. Popularly, popular sovereignty shouldn't apply to them. By establishing popular sovereignty in them, Stephen Douglas's bill would potentially undo the Missouri Compromise. And Franklin Pierce is a bit unsure about this. He doesn't want to be seen as the one responsible for rolling back the Missouri Compromise. This could potentially be really politically unpopular. He'd much rather the Supreme Court be the one to decide this. So he told Stephen Douglas to hold back for a second. And Stephen Douglas is like, okay, fine. He takes out the language that would maybe undo a bit 
of the Missouri Compromise more explicitly. And suddenly Franklin Pierce is like, oh, hell yes, let's pass this Kansas-Nebraska Act. As soon as the slightly sketchy language is out of the bill, Franklin Pierce basically forces all the Democrats in Congress who do hold the majority to vote for it or else he won't lend them any political support. So in May 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed. It says that Kansas and Nebraska could become states and that slavery isn't automatically illegal in the land above the Missouri Compromise line if that land is part of Kansas and Nebraska. As soon as the act becomes law, it is super unpopular. It basically causes the Democratic Party to fall apart because most Northern Democrats hate it. It leads to a new party, the Republicans, who are like, hey, you can't undo the Missouri Compromise by doing this. You're expanding slavery. Oh, shit. We're going to be the party against slavery. And a bunch of major Northern Democrats literally leave the Democratic Party and join the Republican Party over this. Once the Kansas-Nebraska Act becomes law, it's pretty clear that Nebraska is not going to become a slave state. Nebraska is far enough north that it is literally impossible to have a plantation economy up there. Most of the people living there are against slavery, etc., etc. However, Kansas is a much more up for grabs. After all, it's right next to Missouri, which is a slave state. The population is a little less sure. People from Missouri start moving in to Kansas to artificially inflate the pro-slavery population. So then people from the north start moving in to even out the population and make it more anti-slavery. And very quickly, we start getting a lot of tension and a lot of debate over which way Kansas is going to go. Very, very quickly, the pro-slavery population in Kansas sets up their own government. And the anti-slavery population in Kansas technically is bigger. And they say, hey, this pro-slavery government isn't legitimate. They ask the territorial governor, can you ignore this pro-slavery government, which isn't legitimate, it's not representative, and the territorial governor does. Then the pro-slavery government asks Franklin Pierce to fire the territorial governor, and Franklin Pierce is like, yeah, okay, and he replaces him with a pro-slavery territorial governor, and just like that, we have a ton of tension. And pretty soon, this tension erupts into actual violence. Pro-slavery groups from Missouri burn down the town of Lawrence, Kansas, which had a reputation for being very anti-slavery. And then abolitionist John Brown and his followers murder a bunch of pro-slavery men at Potawatomi Creek, which gives Kansas the nickname Bleeding Kansas. And this is a whole big story. And if you want more information about Bleeding Kansas, and particularly John Brown, don't worry, there will be a very special episode with a very special guest host all about John Brown coming up very soon. 
And it's not just Kansas that's getting heated up about this. People within Washington, D.C. itself are up in arms. A Massachusetts senator, Charles Sumner, gives a speech denouncing the bleeding Kansas situation. In his speech, he insults a South Carolina senator. Two days later, Preston Brooks, the senator's cousin and a congressman from South Carolina, attacks Sumner with a cane on the floor of the Senate and literally beats him bloody. This shows how the violence from Kansas is spreading. Congressmen are beating up senators. It's out of control. Some Brooks ends up getting censored by Congress. He resigns and then promptly runs for his empty seat and wins it back. As all the Kansas drama is spreading and Franklin Pierce is getting less and less popular, he steps into foreign affairs yet again. He recognizes a dictator he recognizes a dictatorship in Grenada by American citizen William Walker. Basically, William Walker had taken over part of Central America in an attempt to make it a slave nation and turn it into a new slave state for the U.S. so the Senate would have more pro-slavery senators. But then, in the process, William Walker had alienated Cornelius Vanderbilt, who wanted to build railroads there by trying to build his own railroads. Once he didn't have the support of Vanderbilt, Franklin Pierce was like, oh, I don't have financial support anymore. Sorry, William Walker, you're out of luck. William Walker gives up this whole dream of turning Granada into a slave state, flees to Honduras, and promptly gets executed. By the end of 1856, it's pretty clear that Franklin Pierce has lost control of the plot. The Democrats do not choose him to be their nominee in the 1856 election because, yeah, he is just completely fucked up. Instead, they replace him with his minister to England, James Buchanan. Pierce does try to run anyways, but by the 15th ballot, it's clear he's not going to get the support and he withdraws his name. Once his presidential ambitions are thwarted, Franklin Pierce doesn't return back to New Hampshire right away. He spends a few months in Washington, D.C. with Jane and some family friends, and then he decides to take a little bit vacate. And then he decides to take a little bit of a vacation. After all, he's had a really tough four years, you guys. He goes on a brief tour of Europe. While he's in Rome, he hangs out with Nathaniel Hawthorne, who says that the president is super upbeat, all things considered, and then he and Jane hang out in the Bahamas for a little bit. After their Caribbean vacation, they return back to New Hampshire. Then, between 1856 and the outbreak of the Civil War, Jane and Franklin just live in New Hampshire. Once the Civil War starts, Franklin Pierce does support the Union. He doesn't go full John Tyler becoming a traitor, but he aggressively does not support Abraham Lincoln. He blames Abraham Lincoln explicitly 
for the Civil War, freaking out. He says that if Abraham Lincoln had not become president, the war would not have happened. And he does this very publicly, which makes a lot of people super annoyed with him. And then in 1861, he gets accused of being part of a Confederate plot, partially because of his very public knowledge with Jefferson Davis, who by now is in charge of the Confederacy. Franklin Pierce almost certainly was not part of this Confederate plot, but by now everyone is fed up with him and basically no one trusts him. He's all alone. In December 1863, Jane dies of tuberculosis in Massachusetts, and a few months later, his only really friend, Nathaniel Hawthorne, also dies. The death of his wife and friend are really hard for Franklin Pierce, and this is basically the only moment where I feel the least bit bad for him. After his wife's death, Franklin Pierce really picks up the drinking. He gets really into the spiritual movement and, like, gets into seances and ghosts and whatnot, which is kind of a mess. After the Civil War ends and Lincoln gets assassinated, Franklin Pierce's house gets attacked by a mob and Pierce almost gets lynched because, one, he was so associated with the Confederacy, and two, he hadn't raised a flag in Abraham Lincoln's honor. Franklin Pierce barely manages to talk himself out of this bad situation and escape with his life. After the Civil War ends, Franklin Pierce gets very involved in making sure that Jefferson Davis does not spend the rest of his life in a U.S. prison. He makes sure that his old friend gets treated well despite being a prisoner and doesn't get executed. He also spends a lot of time financially helping out Nathaniel Hawthorne's son and nephews because as it turns out, being a famous writer does not necessarily mean that your affairs are in the best order. He also may or may not have had some sort of physical relationship with a local New Hampshire woman. By the late 1860s, Franklin Pierce's heavy drinking really starts catching up with him. His physical health majorly declines, and he dies on October 8, 1869, of liver cirrhosis at the age of 64. He's buried next to Jane in Concord, New Hampshire. In his will, he left most of his estate and money to the family of one of his brothers and to Nathaniel Hawthorne's son. Even though he was the only president from New Hampshire, his hometown refused to put up any statues in his honor until the early 1900s, which I think pretty much says it all when it comes to Franklin Pierce's legacy. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's quickly recap the life of Franklin Pierce. Franklin Pierce was born in 1854 to a American Revolutionary War hero who ended up getting pretty involved in New Hampshire state politics. Franklin Pierce's father wanted his son to be well-educated, and Franklin was well-educated even though he did have a knack for getting into trouble. 
he ended up going to Bowdoin College at the age of 15. He started out doing very poorly academically because he preferred wrestling and getting drunk to going to classes, but he ended up buckling down and graduating fifth in his class. After graduation, he studied law and got involved in New Hampshire state politics. His father served as governor and through his father's connections and a real knack for political organizing, young Franklin joined the New Hampshire state legislature and ended up becoming Speaker of the House before he was even 30. From there, he went into Congress and spent the next few years in Congress, where he laid low and made friends with a lot of Southerners. During his time in Congress, he married his wife, Jane Means Appleton, who was basically the polar opposite of her husband. Franklin Pierce was handsome, outgoing, and loved to party, whereas Jane was quiet and didn't believe in alcohol. From Congress, Franklin went into the Senate, where he continued to lay low, do grunt work, and be friends with Southerners, which in the 1840s meant being okay with slavery. By 1841, Franklin Pierce, for a variety of reasons, was kind of over the whole Senate thing, so he, his wife, and his two surviving sons moved back to New Hampshire. He bounced around in New Hampshire, making a name for himself as the hottest lawyer in town, and then, by the time the Mexican-American War kicked off, he decided he was going to become a soldier. Tragically for Franklin Pierce, his soldiering career wasn't that great because his horse literally fell on him, breaking his leg and giving him the really embarrassing nickname, Fainting Frank. Yeah, not great. He went back home to New Hampshire and continued the whole law thing, but also continued building up his political reputation in state. He became the leader of the New Hampshire Democrats, which put him in a really great situation for the 1852 election. Franklin Pierce was the dark horse of the election. He managed to get his name on the 35th ballot and ended up becoming the 1852 Democratic nominee for president. The Whigs nominated absolute incompetent fool Winfield Scott, so Franklin Pierce became the president in 1852. He was seen as a dream compromise candidate. He was a northerner who was A-OK -okay with slavery. But as president, this was going to massively bite him in the ass. Before he could even become president, his last surviving son, Benjamin, died in a freak train accident. He literally got crushed to death devastating Franklin and kind of sending his wife over the deep end. The death of his son was really some nice foreshadowing for the rest of Franklin Pierce's presidency. The main issue on the table was going to be bleeding Kansas. Basically, under the 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act, Kansas's citizens got to determine whether Kansas would be a free or slave state, which sort of let it be an epic free-for-all where people from northern anti-slavery states and pro-slavery Missouri came flooding in in an attempt to determine Kansas' state. Very quickly, things turned violent and murder ensued. This made Franklin Pierce super unpopular and quite literally split the party, leading to the rise of the brand new Republican 
party. Franklin Pierce didn't fare much better in Foreign Affairs. We have the Ostend Manifesto, where Franklin Pierce briefly attempted to take over Cuba, and then the whole mess that was William Walker down in Central America trying to create his own new slavery countries that just fizzled out epically. Franklin Pierce did such a bad job as president that in 1856, his own party did not choose to re-elect him as nominee. Once he was done in his presidency, Franklin Pierce went on a brief little vacation and then headed home where he remained unpopular through the Civil War thanks to his deep connections to the South. He ended up dying in 1869 due to cirrhosis of the liver. So yeah, I think it is fair to argue, despite his hotness and his sadness, that Franklin Pierce is one of our worst presidents of all time. I don't really think he has any, like, redeeming qualities as a politician. For this episode, most of my research came from Gene Baker's series of essays for the Miller Center, Michael Holt's biography, Franklin Pierce, and Michael Gerhardt's excellent book, The Forgotten Presidents, Their Untold Constitutional Legacy. As always, a full bibliography and relevant images can be found at the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. Next time, I will be covering, quite possibly, the worst president to date, James Buchanan. As always, you can reach me on social media, on Twitter, at sadgirlstudypod, on Instagram, for the memes, at sadgirlstudy. If you would like to financially support the podcast, you can do so by joining the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. Members who join at $5 a month or more get access to the super fun bi-monthly tangent casts where I talk about people, places, or things that didn't make it onto full-length episodes. And as always, the best way to help the podcast grow is tell a friend or subscribe and let me ha- and let me know how I'm doing. Read a review or else. I'll be sad. Thanks. <laughs>